0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Optimizing Real World Outcomes in Wet AMD, Reducing the Burden of Treatment with Longer-Acting Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash bpz860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, my name is Rishi Singh from Cleveland Clinic, Florida, and I'm professor of ophthalmology, and welcome to this educational activity on improving outcomes in patients with wet AMD with longer-acting treatment options. We've been fortunate in retina for the past 15-plus years to have monotherapy anti-VEGF treatment options for our patients. These options have really improved our ability to improve vision in our patients and reduce the anatomical distortion which comes with neovascularization. What we're seeing in clinical practice is very, very different than what we saw in the clinical trials, and this uh, webinar will go over some of the more durable options which may improve patient adherence and treatment outcomes for our patients in the real world. Let's first talk about the prevalence and burden of age-related macularation. We know that over 200,000 Americans are newly diagnosed with AMD each year, and 11 million Americans are living with macularduration on a daily basis. We know that the global burden is rising of macular degeneration with a significant number of cases expected as your go, years go on. And AMD itself is a major cause of increased incidence of depression, increased mortality, increase of need for assistance of daily living. And once they lose their vision, they also lose their independence. And I'm sure as ophthalmologists and retina specialists, you've heard of countless stories of individuals having to rely on others for their care as a result of losing vision. And we also know that AMD causes a progressive loss of central sight, which impacts the ability of patients to drive, read, recognize faces, and see the world in color. We're fortunate to have multiple standards of care for anti-VEGF therapy over the past 15 plus years. We have had both on-label options and off-label options for these conditions. On the on-label side, we've had the ranibizumab, and brolicizumab. On the off-label side, we have bevacizumab. They all affect the VEGF-A isoformer molecule, which prevents uh, the growth of neovascularization and the progression of these in these patient populations. And they're indicated for multiple indications, including wet AMD, diabetic macular edema, retinopathy, prematurity, depending on which drug you're looking at. Bevacizumab is still considered an off-label agent and is not considered approved for ophthalmic use there's certainly benefits and burdens to intravitreal anti-VEGF therapies for the treatment of a wet AMD. Intravitreal therapy comes with, uh, is highly effective in the clinical trials for duration, But when you look at the real world, there's a disconnect between what happens in the studies and what happens in the real world. We know that vision drops off in the real world over time, despite all the studies that have been performed with the first generation of anti-VEGF therapy. And we know that vision outcomes correlate with treatment intensity Mean the number of injections really improve outcomes as far as the final visual acuity in our patient populations. And there's a need for frequent monitoring and injections, which results in a high treatment burden and lead to poor adherence treatment over time. This is the study of, uh, or called AURA, which was a real world study abo- amongst many countries using randomism as the treatment of neovascular AMD. And you can see that a vast majority of patients improve vision within 30, 60, and 90 days following the initiation of therapy. However, many of them lost vision as time went on due to lack of adherence with these ongoing regimens. Obviously, this is a need for more durable therapy in these patient populations and for a need for a drug that maintains vision gains after the initial improvements that were seen in the first part of the trial. We also are aware of the luminous trial, which showed that in a real-world clinical setting, the number of patients who get less than five injections is around 73%, so the vast majority get a very infrequent number of therapies in the first year. And this can have obviously impacts with regards to visual acuity in the patient populations that are seen. Here's a study that was performed within the uh, real-world analysis, again, in Vestrum, which is a collection of, of retina specialist electronic records. And what they found essentially was that with an increasing number of injections you get an increasing uh, improvement in visual acuity. You have to give at least 7 injections in fact in the study in order to see a stabilization of vision and 7 or more injections potentially led to an improvement in vision in this population over a single year of time. This is a nice study that also looked by Silard Keshon at all at the impact on anatomy with successive injections. And what you can see on this graph is that with every successive treatment, you get an increased reduction in retinal thickness and normalization of the retinal thickness over time as a result of increasing the frequency of therapy. So just to confirm again from those prior studies, what we found essentially is that with uh, the frequency being high in the real world, you do get the outcomes you hope to achieve, albeit at the expense of potentially the burden of treatment in these populations. So we know that obviously factors of uh, linked to non inherence are multiple in nature, and we know that intensive therapy is really needed to maximize visual benefit, and therefore we try to give as much intensive therapy as we can, but the reality is that our patients have high out-of-pocket costs, pain and discomfort from the injection, as I showed you before, the uh, anticipation anxiety around injections makes, make them want to cancel the appointments. And again, with the number of, uh, of the ability of those patients to function on with activity of living, uh, that's a real impact as far as from a socioeconomic standpoint of having them come into practice for their treatments. Certainly, you know, when we talk about patients in the, the barriers, we also see things like financial concerns, uh, again, the receiving of poor prognosis following that, the loss of mobility or transportation, or even the lack of knowledge of anti therapy and routine clinical practice. Let's now focus for a little bit on the patient-reported pain and discomfort and time of burden of treatment and outcomes for patients. And what this study was done and showing you is that the mass, vast majority of people find that injections are time-consuming therapies, that they result in eye pain, um, the vast majority of patients ascribe to some or a significant amount of pain, and that discomfort lasted well beyond the opposite itself. Only 17% of patients said that these injections were not time-consuming, meaning the balance of, of that, were considering these very time-consuming, and only 18% of patients were totally say that they were pain-free during the procedure, which is, again, the balance of those patients, almost 82% that had some, if not significant amounts of discomfort for an extended period of time during the course of therapy. When looking at the side effect burden and anxiety-related treatment, again, very similarly, you saw that many of these patients were burdened from the standpoint of anxiety in and around the medications. 30 to 39% of patients exhibited some amount of anxiousness during the treatment process. And again, to say the balance here, 60% or greater did have a lot of anxiety as a result of anticipating these injections in clinical practice. This is a Norwegian study that looked at patients who got uh, treatments for wet macular duration. And this was interesting because it found that many of these patients had more significant reactions to this even prior to their injection period. You can see in the, in the uh, middle graph that even a day or two days or even a week prior, they were thinking about these appointments and had anxiety around the appointments, and that they actually had so much stress that they were actually affected by their sleep or their concentration or difficulty being able to relax was one of the things they talked about even coming in prior to that injection. This is a really interesting study because what it saw was that there were disconnects between what the treatment barriers are between the patient, the caregiver, and the retina specialist. And what you can see in the dark blue bars is that there were times in which the retina specialist agreed to the patient, but there were other times where the retina specialist did not agree with the patient. For example, in the format of travel logistics as an impact or barrier to therapy, retina specialists felt that this was a barrier to patients, but in fact, the patients themselves said this was not a barrier. Looking a little bit in more in depth, you see that financial burdens of therapy are thought by the retina specialist to be uh, one of the major drivers for non-adherence or treatment barriers. Yet, in fact, the patients themselves say that that's less of an issue. So just again to point out that there are some differences in regards to what providers feel like are barriers to therapy, but also what patients and caregivers might feel in regards to these barriers to therapy. As we discussed, there are some limitations to the prior anti-VEGF therapies we discussed both on-label and off-label, and we're thankful that the, the innovation of retina has continued and we have ri- durable, viable options to consider at this given stage. We have a high dose, which is an 8 milligram dosage of aflibercept that is the same format as what you're aware of from the prior, which is the uh, VEGF receptor 1 and 2 modified, uh, attached to a modified FC portion. You have the ranibizumab port delivery system, which is a basically a delivery port of a ranibizumab that was delivered over a long extended period of time with dosing up to every 24 weeks. And then you have ferisumab, which is the first bispecific molecule for the treatment of neovascular AMD, which binds both an anti-VEGF and an anti-ANG2 to a single FC fragment for the treatment of neovascular AMD, diabetic macular edema, and most recently, retinal vein occlusion. Let's look at these trials a little bit more in detail to understand how these drugs were approved. A 8 milligram was studied in a phase 3 clinical trial called Pulsar. And this trial randomized patients to receiving 2 milligrams every 8 weeks after 3 loading doses, uh, a 8 milligrams after every 12 weeks after 3 loading doses, or a every 16 weeks after 3 loading doses. The primary endpoint was the mean change in best corrected acuity uh, at week 48. And the end of the study was at week 96. Looking at these durable studies, it's important to understand that there was an ability to shorten or extend the intervals of treatment. And the criteria for either shortening or extension is listed here. It's either a five-letter loss of best acuity compared to week 12 and a 25 micron of central foveal thickness uh, compared to week 12, or the new onset of foveal neovascularization or the new onset of foveal hemorrhage. This criteria was used during the course of the study to determine if patients were shortened or extended during the course of the study. Looking at the results of the PULSAR study, we see here that the patients who received 8 mg of flibricep compared to 2 mg of had the same outcome in regards to vision, with a non-inferiority trial met at the end of both week 48 as well as at week 96. And this is in, co- in concert with the fact that 8 mg was given less frequently during the course of the studies. Looking a little bit more at the anatomical thickness, you see a equivalent result uh, as far as anatomical reduction in retinal thickness from baseline for both 8 milligram and 2 milligram over the course of the study, albeit those in the 8 milligram form got, it, got their injections less frequently than they did in the 2 milligram form. Looking at those patients were able to finish the study based upon that DRM criteria of extension or shortening, you see here that at uh, those patients at week 60, you had 85% that were able to go Q12 and beyond. And again, looking at those patients in the 16-week group, you see that 77% of patients were able to go Q16 weeks and beyond. With a combined nature of both groups looking together, at 87% of patients were able to go Q12 and beyond for all of the eight milligram of flippercept group. At week 96, this actually was increased even further with actually 47% of patients able to go Q20 weeks and beyond. You had patients who were going, 71% of patients going Q16 weeks and beyond, and 88% of patients going Q12 and beyond. Again, showing the, the, the durable nature of eight milligram of flippercept as we have seen in this population. Here's the safety of the PULSAR study of 8 milligram of flibricep through week 60. And you can see it's well-balanced in regards to the adverse event issues here. Of note, uh, this 8 milligram of flibricep is given in a slightly larger volume, 0.07 cc's, And it's important to follow the IOP rises in potentially these patients over time. You can see that nonetheless, despite the larger volume, there wasn't a significant rise in in the intraocular pressure. Also looking at the higher dose of livercept you may hypothesize it may be a concern around antiplatelet trial as collaborative events but nonetheless this drug proved to be effective and safe in this patient population. Let's switch gears and talk about ranibizumab port delivery system. The phase 3 Archway trials was the 2-year study that registered port delivery system for the treatment of neovascular AMD. Patients received either 100 milligrams per mL of ranibizumab port delivery with fixed refills every 24 weeks versus 0.5 milligrams of intra given Q4 weeks over the course of two years. You can see that the results show that the primary change in visual acuity was essentially was equivocal between two, both groups, and there was neither an increase or a decline in the vision over the course of study, which is what you would expect from a treated population. The secondary endpoint was a change in best acuity score over time, and the change in CPT from baseline were generally the same between the two treatments arms over the course of the study. Looking a little bit more in detail into the adverse events, there was uh, some patients who initially had a vitreous hemorrhage after implantation. That number declined significantly as they retaught the procedure and how to cauterize the, vitre- the base of the scleral incision prior to making the final incision for the port delivery system. There were a few cases of endophthalmitis, corneal erosion, and certainly conjunctival react- retraction is another one we were always concerned with as well. Unfortunately, in late 2022, the ocular implant was a, an insertion assembly tool was voluntarily recalled due to septum dislodgement, and this did not include the refill vial or the needle. And here's an example of that septal dislodgement you can see here, where the septum actually can go into the bottom of the tube and therefore be exposed and, or leave a larger hole behind it and that can lead to potentially some concerns around infection. This occurred in 2.3% of cases as of August 31st, 2022. Switching gear again and looking at a different mechanism of action, we can look at ferisumab. Ferisumab is a bicep protein affecting both VEGF and ANG2 receptors bound to a modified FC fragment. You can see that over the course of the tenaion lucerne studies, patients were randomized to receiving the drug every 8 weeks, every 12 weeks, or every 16 weeks, with disease intervals determined at various time points to determine the patient should be adjusted. This was compared against a Flibercep given every eight weeks after three loading doses to see if there was a difference over time. Now, you might be wondering why we chose a Flibercep two milligrams every eight weeks. And I can tell you that one of the reasons for choosing this was because, A, it was the gold standard for therapy. It had the best possible outcome for patients. And B, it allowed for masking because the most recent the most uh, lowest frequency of of interval of dosing in this study was eight weeks. So as a result, they chose to run the study the way they did. The PTI regimen was applied in year two, which was a personalized treatment interval, and that was based upon multiple different criteria, which we'll review later. But essentially, the endpoint of the study was week uh, 104, where they found um, the the end of the study at that point in time. But the primary endpoint being at week 40, 44, and 48 – again, due to the intervals of dosing over that period of time. And here are the results of the trial, which found essentially over the two-year period that there was an equivalent gain in visual acuity in both farisumab as well as the uh, treatment control here, which is a flibricep given in two milligram format. Uh, the patients uh, were a- actually able to get out to 16 weeks with an average of three injections within the second year in the 16-week group versus uh, eight, six injections within the flibricep eight milligram group over the same period of time. Looking at the final results from Farisimab in the Tanaya and Lucerne studies, you found that this therapy was very, very durable, with 74% of patients able to give Q12 and beyond during the course of both Tanaya and Lucerne over the two-year study. So again, showing you the value and benefit of Farisimab in the treatment of neovascular AMD. Now, they did look at the pooled results of the safety data from Tanaya and Lucerne and found essentially equivocal results in regards to iritis, uveitis, and carotid precipitates, and any other sort of inflammatory condition. There were no cases of endophthalmitis or retinal vasculitis in the forisimab-treated population. So let's look a little bit at some real-world data. And the FAR-Retina AMD trial is a great example of some real-world data with map to understand its impact on the retina community. Uh, we know that the I- Intelligent Research and Site Registry of the, of the American Academy of Ophthalmology is a great way of looking at data in, in a large aggregate format to understand better what a drug is doing in clinical practice. In this study, 70, 70, seventeen thousand five hundred eyes were included, of which six point two percent were treatment naive. Uh, the best-corrected documented acuity of twenty forty or better was in forty nine percent of patients, which again sh- explains the fact that these these uh, um, uh, studies where these conditions are rather newer in the patient, they're probably coming in as an earlier diagnosis as a result of all the screening we're doing and all the the elevation we're doing over, of these disease states over time. And of these patients, 69% were previously treated with, uh, with, uh, with another drug and an extended interval, of which 55% of it, patients extended after one to two injections on ferisimab. However, looking at those patients who were treatment naive, they did have an improvement in visual acuity, uh, albeit uh, that it was not as good as probably the clinical trials go, but yet they did have a nice improvement in visual acuity over the course of study. So as I mentioned to you in the beginning of this program, that we have obviously some uh, anti-VEGF therapy that's been around for many years now. And this year, we've had the exciting uh, entree of many different um, drugs into the market. We obviously still have Benazizumab, which is off-label. We have uh, Renabizumab, Aflibrocept, and brolizumab, which are all uh, the first-generation anti treatment options for our patients Ferisimab, which is the bi-specific molecule affecting both ANG2 and VEGF together, and high-dose of flibricept, which is, again, a molecule familiar with now with a high-dose form that has 8 milligrams uh, concentrated of flibricept in comparison to 2 milligrams in the past. We also have some other ranibizumab molecules that you see here, which are biosimilars. Biosimilars are essentially uh, almost identical to the actual reference product in every shape and form in regards to their clinical efficacy and safety, with some specific differences in regards to their structure of the molecule. And what this allows for in biosimilars is to bring in a product that potentially would be competitive with the existing reference product, again, to lower drug prices and to allow for more competition within the market space. With first-line therapy, this has been a controversial topic for many retina specialists. We've seen a plethora of studies that have been done comparing some of these drugs head-to-head for conditions like AMD and for diabetic macular edema. In fact, one of the most recent trials, which is protocol T, showed that when ranibizumab, aflibercept, and uh, abevisumab were compared for diabetic macular edema, uh, aflibercept had the most improved visual acuity, and in the highest risk populations of 2050 or worse. At the same token, uh, because of the improvement in visual acuity in all arms of the study, many insurance companies and many other uh, individuals have used this as potentially allowing for step therapy to be in place for patients in our our reimbursement populations. This puts constraints on some of our physicians in regards to when they can select first-line therapy Sometimes they're mandated by these companies to start with bevacizumab as an off-label, and only after failure of that treatment are they allowed to move on to other branded drugs. As a result of potentially using some of these step therapy implications, we may see a delayed response in our patients, and we know that persistent therapy and persistent loss of vision potentially results in a worsening outcome for patients over time. So when we look at addressing the burden of treatment, which you covered a little bit in some of the prior slides, we need to look at not only the reimbursement issues we talked about, but also the patient-centric issues, Uh, understanding uh, that the patient knows to come back for therapy and understands the consequences of non-adhering therapy, which essentially includes the loss of vision over time. And we're all aware that treatment adherence is related to transportation, the ability to rely rely on others for these potential therapies. And again, um, while there's no particular way we predict who will be a a non-adherent person or not, we should have these conversations with all our patients to make sure that uh, we can solve them through simple education over time. And the goal really is to find an effective treatment with the goal of clearing up all the fluid and all the hemorrhage which occurs within a patient, getting them back to baseline uh, and uh, and certainly trying to address the underlying cause of neovascularization with these therapies, albeit that their treatment compli- non compliance really affects the final outcome in regards to vision. We have obviously had a variety of different dosing regimens in retina. We've had fixed dosing regimens, as needed regimens. Um, there's some advantages and disadvantages to both. With fixed dosing regimens, it, be, it becomes consistent application, but it's really not individualized. So what are some advantages of these individualized treatment regimens for neovascular ND? I mentioned to you some of these before. In the studies, they were all fixed dosing regimens, either Q8, Q4, sometimes Q12. But if you can be flexible about the dosing regimen, you potentially have the ability to prevent overtreatment. You possibly have a cost-effective option for patients. And looking at the goal of, of these therapies... Obviously, we try to suppress the growth of neovascularization, but that's not always 100% in these populations that we do look at. And again, losing these treatment approaches, we can uh, really try to extend uh, the novel therapeutic approaches to get the best interval between injections for our patients, reducing, again, the burden of treatment. In PRN regimens, there is a lower treatment burden. However, there's significant uh, disadvantages in regards to fluid fluctuation, Uh, which can be a detriment to the retina over time because the patient doesn't necessarily get enough drug uh, to them through this process. So treat and extend really has become the best of both worlds. It combines uh, aspects of continuous regimen with PRN therapy or a variable approach um, that avoids the disadvantages for each method. And again, the individual patient has been shown to, uh, um, the treatment regimen is shown to increase persistence on therapy and achieve gains comparable to clinical trials when treat and extend paradigms are used. As I discussed, when we use these treat and extend regimens uh, for our patients to extend the intervals and to reduce the burden, increase adherence and prevent um, patients from losing vision over time, we can now marry these with uh, the newer agents i spoke of before, farisumab, uh, high-dose uh, aflibercept, uh, as well as port delivery system when it does become available to further uh, reduce the burden of treatment for our patient populations. So to summarize wet macular duration is a major cause of visual impairment and blindness with increasing prevalence as the population ages, we know that therapy has really been a game changer for patients with macula, wet macular duration for the past 15 years, this has obviously been the first generation of therapies, as we discussed. We discussed the more durable options like high-dose aflibercept, ferisumab, which is a biophysic affecting both ANG2 and VEGF together, and we discussed uh, the port delivery system, which is a longer-acting format of retinobisumab in the port delivery system. And we know that these agents help to really decrease the injection burden uh certainly would improve the adherence of therapies over time and again, are approved for, for now use in our patient population. and certainly are considerations when we discuss these options with our patients. As we discussed also, the treatment adher- individualized treatment plans are usually individualized in nature, and uh, it depends on both provider patient interactions and patient needs and preferences in regarding the treatment regimen. I hope you found this webinar to be uh, informative and useful, and I appreciate your time today in watching this program. Thank you very much.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BPZ 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.